Andrew Hudson is my guest today on the Scholars Podcast. He's a 2005 John Monash Foundation Scholar. He has honours in both politics and law and a Master's of Law. Andrew has just returned home from New York City, where he has spent the last 16 years in the United States. And he's joining us from Melbourne today. Andrew, welcome back to Australia. Hi, thanks. It's great to be home. So you've come back to Australia and no doubt you've had to endure two weeks of hard lockdown. Tell us about that experience. Well, yeah, we have three young kids, uh, one, three and five, and I was very worried about spending two weeks in a hotel room. (laughs) That that had uh, potential to be trouble. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We got very lucky. My first piece of advice to any other John Monash scholar coming home is quarantine in Sydney. Uh, The program up there is fabulous. Um, We got a really good Is that right? Yeah. We got a really good apartment with, with balconies and fresh air and a treadmill and uh, yeah, so we could get anything delivered we wanted to and lots of fresh air. Uh, so yeah, I was actually very impressed with we, you know, we were literally met by the army getting off the plane. Uh, and is that what is that what happens? You get yeah, off and yeah. like it's like come here. Please. Yeah, they grab your bags and put them all on a bus. We had our own bus for our family of five uh, going to our hotel. Uh, and the whole program is extremely smoothly run. So yeah, look, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like um, I, I actually joke. I, I joke that my wife got Stockholm syndrome because she said, "Oh, this is fabulous," and I was like, "No, oh, definitely, it def- definitely wasn't fabulous." I'm doing a lockdown again. This yeah. is great. It was not fabulous, but it wasn't as bad as I expected. Yeah. Okay. And were you 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 would have been worried about it, knowing that you were coming home and just thought, yeah. Oh, I mean, it was, you know, the, 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 the financial cost and stress associated of coming home was huge. I mean, probably the, 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 the worst aspect of the pandemic, I would say for us, and we can probably talk more about this. It might be a big statement coming, coming from someone that was in New York, but, you know, it cost us the best part of $40,000 to come home. Stop it. I mean, it's just obscene. No, um, and primarily not, that's the airfares, right? I would think. Yeah, and then also the cost of quarantine. Yeah, oh. but um, you know, and then not knowing when you're going to get home. And we we had a flight booked into Melbourne, and you know, the airport um, was closed. We didn't know when it was going to reopen. For weeks, we thought it was going to reopen in time, and then two weeks beforehand, we had to make a decision. You know, well, it doesn't look like it's going to open in time, so we had to change flights to flying to Sydney and just the, the stress of not knowing when to get in, whether we were going to get in, the the stress of having to spend an enormous amount of you know, life savings. Mm. Um, and then the stress of knowing we had to quarantine for two weeks. It was definitely, you know, an unpleasant um, time. But um, but then coming out of, made, made coming out of quarantine all the more euphoric. Uh, so you forget about all of that. Weeks. <laughs> well, hopefully. Are there many on the plane coming home? No, I mean, each plane is limited to 25 people. Um, so that's the Australian <laughs> federal government. Plenty of regulation. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, it is obscene, again, that you have these planes flying um, with the carbon footprint that that plane has like that and everything 25 else people. for 25 people. Yeah, there's got to be a better way, one would think. So, um, well, let's, let's go to your time in the United States, um, 
what I'll let you describe what you were doing there. What was your job? Yeah, well, so I had uh, 16 years in the United States with quite a few different things going on. So when I first went over with the John Monash Scholarship, that enabled me to study at uh, New York University uh, School of Law, uh, mm. which is the best uh, law school for human rights in the world, which is you know what I've always done. Yes. Uh, had a great time there working um, with all sorts of fabulous people, um, including Philip Holston, probably Australia's leading international human rights expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I came out of um, my master's at NYU uh, and worked for uh, an organization called the International Center for Transitional Justice, one of the leading kind of human rights organizations, uh, and then went to work for Human Rights First for five years. That organization used to be called the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. Um, Again, one of the leading kind of international human rights organizations that did a lot of work on Latin America. Um, And then for the last 11 years, I've worked at Crisis Action. Uh, So I've been the CEO of Crisis Action for the last six years. Um, Crisis Action is a fabulous organization. Tell us about Uh, it. What is Crisis Action? So... um, the mandate is to protect civilians in war zones, uh, to prevent conflict, uh, to resolve conflict, uh, to stop mass atrocities in places like Syria, Yemen, South Sudan. Uh, mm. And what's unusual about the organization is we work entirely behind the scenes. So we're sometimes called the most effective organization you've never heard of. You've never heard of. Heard of. Uh, and so that's by design. Like so, a good you know, spin doctor. Just, just right. staying out of the limelight, yeah. Or maybe an orchestra conductor yes. or the, the, the cocks in a rowing boat. <laughs> um, so those sorts of analogies. Uh, so, you know, we will um, bring together, um, you know, uh, local human rights activists from Syria, get them to brief the UN Security Council, get them onto the front page of the New York Times, get them to really change government policy in a particular war zone, but you won't hear about us anywhere because we don't want to detract from the the authenticity and the legitimacy and the power of those different voices. So, yeah, when I joined Crisis Action... And presumably, Andrew, staying out of the limelight, that's precisely the way you like to run things. Well, right. That's the power of this model, isn't it? That, That basically we can, in that orchestra conductor role, we can decide which voice is going to be the most powerful in a given moment? Is it amplifying the voices of religious leaders? Is it amplifying the voice of the of the private sector? Is it amplifying voices from the ground? Uh, and so really, you know, it's a very, very, very powerful model. And, and staying out of the limelight means that those people trust us. Mm. Uh, and it means that, that those, those voices can really cut through to the halls of power. And so tell us about some of the work uh, that you can uh, that that you did uh, at Crisis Action. Yeah, well, and and I, and I think we are, what was great is that when I when I joined Crisis Action eleven years ago, we were about eight people. Uh, we're now almost sixty people in twelve countries. Um, so you know, a really once in a lifetime dream job to run a globally complex organisation that's having massive impact. Um, I mean, to run through a couple of examples, mm. we. We helped to secure a UN peacekeeping force um, in Central African Republic, uh, which we now know has saved thousands of lives. Uh, we we helped to secure a breakthrough first ever agreement for the UN to send aid convoys across borders into Syria, um, which 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 reached three million starving Syrians, and that was extremely 
groundbreaking because the UN would never normally contravene the sovereignty of an individual state. Yes. How do you go about doing something like that? That's That's got to be more than, you know, boots on the ground and phone calls. There's There has to be a lot of um, logistical barriers to overcome. Yeah, well, you know, that, that was a six-month global campaign mm. uh, where we were coordinating hundreds of different organisations and voices. Uh, so obviously work at the UN Security Council in New York to target, um, you know, the UN Security Council uh, missions and ambassadors, but then also work in the regions, right, where those governments are, um, because we have offices all around the world, so whether it was the Middle East or Africa or um, even China and Russia, uh, which were key kind of blockers on this. So, um, yeah, really trying to, to, to pull out all the stops to, to do media work, to do policymaker meetings. Uh, yeah, so sort of extensive, um, extensive campaigning and advocacy. Did you do a lot of international travel as part of your role there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, again, we had offices in about 12 countries. So I was, um, yeah, the pre-COVID life. I mean, I was Yeah, there'd be a lot of frequent flyer points. Yeah, although working for a not-for-profit, we always travel discount economy. So oh, it's very, the, very, very hard to now get <laughs> frequent flyer points. Yeah, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, I was usually traveling twice a month and not just traveling, you know, Canberra to Sydney, but traveling New York to Nairobi, you know. Okay, yes, <laughs> um, different, different feel. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, I mean, it was such a great job. You know, I got to brief the UN Security Council. I got to brief Congress in the US. I got what to was chair. that like? What was it like yeah, briefing, I mean, briefing the, the UN? It was great. You know, the, the, all of these different settings look different. Uh, they depend on the meeting and, um, you know, who's there and all that sort of stuff. But but the main UN Security Council um, meetings that I was briefing on was quite a few years ago on the Lord's Resistance Army, which was Joseph Cody and his cronies in, in Central Africa and this feared terrorist group that would mutilate and hack people to death and abduct hundreds at a time. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I had the great privilege of addressing the council with um, two amazing religious leaders from, from Congo uh, uh, who were you know, sort of giving their life story and experience of, of this terrorist organization. And I, I then came in to provide some of the recommendations about what the UN Security Council should do. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun forging these relationships with diplomats over many years. Um, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a really fun and, time. And uh, and Congress, what was that like? Yeah, so Congress is very different, right? Like the UN yeah. Security Council is the most international global experience, and then US <laughs> yes. Congress is the most narrow and parochial <laughs> and American experience. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I addressed a couple of different commissions and committees there. Uh, they have a Human Rights Commission. Uh, uh, which is very kind of, you know, which has the most progressive members of Congress. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, and then they have various different committees on the different regions of the world as well. So um, it, I was mainly briefing on Latin America and Guatemala and Congress and getting the US Congress to, to actually set up uh, this amazing initiative, this um uh, uh, international Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, which has now sent uh, two or three former presidents to jail. Uh, and so the US funding of that at the start was instrumental. Were you ever in a situation in your job where you're overseas 
in a hot spot, so to speak, and you thought, "Ooh, this is um, this is a little bit dangerous. This is a bit hairy. I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely certain. I'm I'm comfortable here." Oh yeah, many times. Uh, I mean, in, in various different jobs throughout my career. I mean, I remember way back when I was with with hum- well, actually with the UN um, Refugee Commission. Um, mm. So I worked. I actually worked for them for a year. Um, after uni in Australia, and we were on the border between Ecuador and Colombia when the war in Colombia was pretty hot. Um, and there were some times there where, um, yeah, it was very tense um, because the, the FARC guerrillas were coming into towns. Um, mm. You know, And I think, you know, they often talk about the fog of war. I mean, you know, when you watch things on TV, it all looks very clear cut, like what's going on. If, well, actually, when you're in it, you have no idea where is the war. You don't know where the war yeah. is. You don't really know where the front yep. line is. Mm. It's just all of a sudden stuff starts happening. It's a lot of chances, a lot of whispers. And yeah, that was one example. But I would say in Congo is definitely kind of the most hair raising. Um, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo yes. is, is a very lawless country. Um, and I spent a bit of time in the east um, in places near Goma. And again, there there were different kind of um, uh, terrorist organizations roaming. And in fact, the, um, the, the main kind of rebel leader um, would drive up and down the street um, in a very large ute with three goons on the back uh, with a with a like just a, an enormous bazooka in fact two bazookas mm. um and they would just roam up and down the streets um and you know and these guys were often on all sorts of different drugs and i mean just the whole the whole scene was was was, Zero, was yeah. pretty crazy um but most people just getting on with their life as normal and that's what's amazing right is that civilians that live in these war zones are so resilient and so courageous and so brave um yeah, it's really, really quite extraordinary. Have you? And I imagine there'd be seen there'd be there'd be times where you're on the plane, you know, you wheels up, you've just left, thinking, "Well, I'm I'm glad I'm out of there." Well, funny you should mention this. So, uh, wheels up. Yes, I was actually leaving Congo Kinshasa. Very, very happy to be leaving. I took a sleeping pill just before, as we were taxiing really down the runway. Put the eye mask on. I'm waiting for wheels up, and wheels up doesn't come. And I look in the in the cabin i'm like is that sort of smoke i can smell long story short that the the plane had run into a a mound of dirt on the runway um (laughs) we returned back to to kinshasa um my sleeping pill started kicking in hard and we then roamed the streets for about from 2 a.m to 5 a.m trying to find a hotel (laughs) and i'm like (laughs) under the effects of this hallucinogenic ambient hardcore sleeping oh. pa- tablet barely able to like <laughs> think. You know, speak <laughs> so yeah wait for wheels up yes oh, and so how did you get involved in all of this so you've obviously had a thread of human rights flowing through you um for a long time of your professional career all of it um where where did your interest in human rights first begin yeah, I, I would say human rights, international affairs. Um, mm. So, um, you know, from a very young age, um, I've always been fascinated by by the world and this kind of arbitrary distinction of national borders. And so at high school, I was very involved in the UN Youth Association okay. uh, and, and ended and up... And where was high school for you? That was in Melbourne? Uh, yes, it was. Um, the small, um, quaint little school of Scotch College. Mm. Uh and um, 
So, so I ended up being national president of the UN Youth Association and then actually ended up being Australia's first youth representative um, to the United Nations in New York in the 90s. Okay, uh, wow. And so from a very young age, you know, even at school, uh, I was you know, very involved in international affairs and UN issues and things like that. Why do you think it was, though, that that, that uh, passion was there? Yeah, I mean, um, I think... My, you know, my dad likes to say um, that, of course, he was responsible for it all, as all good parents do. <laughs> yeah, uh, they, they, they took me out of school in grade one, and we spent, I think, about six months traveling the world, and not just going to like London, Paris, but going to Thailand, Egypt, India. Okay, all uh, right, yes. And so, you know, I think getting a, a real feel from a young age what the rest of the developing world looks like. Um, I think that must have happened. That must have helped at, at, at some level. Um, mm. But, you know, I think I've just always been fascinated in um, a kind of a human well-being, you know, mm. and, and, I, and, and it sort of seems strange. I often think it's really weird that why do people ask me, why I'm interested in this, and yet no one says, why are you interested in only maximizing profit? Which mm. is, of course, y- yes. the, which is, of course, the 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 the, the motivation for eighty percent of the jobs in, in yep. any country. I feel like we've got right to run away, right? right it's really bizarre. Like, why are you interested in maximizing money? It makes no sense to me. <laughs> mm. And I think you you know you've definitely forged a career in helping people. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and I mean, there is no better. You know, often people say, "Oh, well, it's so." Um, you know, altruistic, you know, and in the sense it is, I mean, I've obviously you look at my peers earning millions of dollars a year. I mean, I could have earned a lot more money um, having worked in the non-for-profit sector the whole time, but it, you, you know, it, it, the kick and the um, incredible um, uh, highs that I get from the work helping people is, is uh, immeasurable. Right. Mm. And, and mm. so, you know that is a bit of a that is a bit of a, a, a drug, right? Like it really does feel <laughs> you're an addict. <laughs> great to be to be you know empowering other people to be making a difference to be making an impact uh, in the world. And so obviously it's been a very hard decision, I imagine, for you to wrap all of that up uh, and move the family back to Australia. What what was the motivation behind it's it's time we um, saw a bit of the home country? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, it's funny, I've, I've just come off this interview with Radio National where we talked about this very topic and, and this organisation Advance has mm. been doing a lot of research into why the Australian diaspora comes home. And, you know, I think that the, the, the general reasons are um, and these all apply to me. You want your kids to have uh, a, an Australian childhood. You want to spend more time with your parents. Yes. Um, you want the Australian lifestyle, um, and and especially, obviously, now in the in this global pandemic, you know, the, the lucky country really is ringing very true at the moment, isn't mm. it? I mean, um, I think we've now had five hundred thousand. Uh, Australians have returned to live in Australia. Uh, so, you know, right now, obviously, the pandemic is the main driver of that to come home and live in this fantastically um, free and healthy society 
uh, is, is, is fabulous. But yeah, I mean, we, so we were always wanting to come home. We've been 16 years in New York. It was okay. time for us to yeah. come home. Um, yeah, the pandemic sped that up a little bit, but we still had, you know, at least over a year to plan that return home. Uh, but um, yeah, we're just very, very, very happy to be home. What was it like? Um, and answer this however you like. So I'm interested in your observations as an Australian living, working, raising a family in New York, one during uh, the the outbreak, the hard outbreak of the coronavirus, COVID, uh, and also the Trump years, living living through um, Donald Trump's presidency. What, 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 well, are observa- the, the, what, what are your observations? Well, the two go hand in hand, don't they? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we had our third child on the day that, WHO declared the virus a global pandemic. Oh. <laughs> uh, very memorable. Very memorable. And, you know, the this was in March last year, and the virus was rampaging. Yes, through the city, it was. But no Particularly one really knew. Yeah. But no one really knew because there was no testing at that stage. Just lots of people getting sick and it was a bit, you know. Um, a week after we left hospital, our ward was turned into a COVID ward. The pediatric ward was converted mm. into, a, into a COVID ward. Uh, so, you know, those early days were were scary because no one knew what was happening, right? I think we are, we've all now got so accustomed to the virus. But back then, no one had any idea what was going mm. on because there was mm. no testing, mm. um, which was, of course, because Donald Trump um, didn't believe it was real and because he disbanded the pandemic's infrastructure and hadn't invested in testing. Uh, uh, so it was scary. It was scary in those initial days. Um, but, you know, I think it was not as scary as the as, as most Australians thought, seeing the news each day in New York of body bags and, yes. and all that sort of stuff. Because, you know, living in New York City, I didn't see the body bags, right? Like, unless you go into the hospital, which I didn't do, you're not going to see that. And yeah. so... Yeah. Our life was, 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 and we never had a lockdown in New York. There was never a lockdown. The governor famously refused to call a mm. lockdown. And in fact- It sounds very strange on, now. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could get on a plane any day of, we could have got on a plane to go anywhere in the US or even internationally any day we wanted to. We could have rented a car on any day. We could have stayed in an Airbnb anywhere. Um, you know, we never were confined to our apartment for any, like- duration of time or anything like that so you know in a sense i felt like we were lucky because we never had the lockdown that melbourne had for instance um mm. so mm. you know it's 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 yeah very very different and everyone's experience this pandemic is different and then to return to the second half of your question of the trump years mm. uh, <laughs> you know i think um just incredibly depressing right i mean just you know the the mm. um the, the 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 impression that that has left with or during the time the the culture that that created of dividing the country so badly you know the divisiveness was palpable walking down the street really um, you know and it, it and of course that then you know came came across into the pandemic right so if you were not wearing a face mask you were a trump supporter and a bad person and i will spit on your face you know like metaphorically um you know just those little social cues right like if you Mm. wore a red cap you were a bad human being that deserved Mm. to be kicked you know um and and then for people of color and for women and for minorities and disadvantaged communities 
it was a living nightmare, you know, that you had the most powerful person in the world telling you that you were the problem, that you were responsible for problems, when of course it's exactly the other way around. Uh, so, you know, it was a really troubling time. Uh, and then to see, you know, such a buffoon and you know, megalomaniacal narcissist um, then at the helm during the largest crisis to hit the world in the last couple of decades. I mean, you know, imagine Hillary Clinton had been president of the US and how different the world would look right now. I, I believe it would look so different. I believe the virus would have been brought under control much more quickly. I believe many, many more, many, many fewer lives would have been lost. Um, so you know, these are there are very real consequences for electing a person like that um, into power. He's talking about coming back, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't doubt. That. I don't doubt that he will. And I think the thing is that people often think that he's the cause, and he's not. He's the consequence, right? Mm. He only got into power because he was tapping into a sentiment in America that's very real. Uh, you know, we spent our last three months in Montana. Uh, and you know, there are large swathes of the country that have been left behind by globalization, that yes. have not been brought along in the experiment of liberalization, that don't really kind of ever really understood democracy or whatever, and are very skeptical of government. Um, and so, you know, it is not Donald Trump is not the problem. The problem is that American society has failed millions and millions of people who are feeling extremely disenchanted, dis, you know, marginalized, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, so that is the problem that that the US needs to fix. And I think Joe Biden, to his credit, is, is really trying to do that. Mm. Uh, Bring both sides of the aisle together, trying to. Yeah, right. Trying to. Yeah. So I know you've uh, you've landed a fresh job uh, in Australia. I'm not sure if you've started it yet, but um, tell us about what you'll be doing next. Yeah, well, I um, you know I spent the last five or six months having um, many conversations with people. I probably had a hundred conversations with people yeah. back in Australia, um, you know, getting their advice about how to return to Australia. And I think again for others that are thinking about coming home. It's so important to do that. You know, I had so many people say, oh, just wait till you get home. Definitely don't wait until you get home. <laughs> you That's know, I think advice. really, yeah, okay. really important to start those conversations six months in advance. Uh, I got so much great advice about how to market my skills, about how to be, you know, a little bit modest about um, what, what I've achieved so as not to activate the kind of Australian tall poppy syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, which is very to, real. Which is very real, right, right. Um, how to, you know, really um, talk about the transferability of skills. Uh, and so, I, I, you know, I actually really enjoyed those conversations and I actually felt a lot of support uh, and receptivity. Um, and so... Um, you know, I applied for, for some jobs and didn't yes. get those. Yep. Um, and then I also had probably two or three organizations that after, you know, those sort of five months of conversations wanted to create a position for me, um, mm -hmm. which was lovely. Wow. That's always nice. Um, so I've taken, uh, I've taken a position at the center for policy development in Melbourne, which is a fabulous policy Institute, uh, that's really trying to, um, create, um, connect, um, 
and convince uh, Australian government uh, across a range of policy areas to make Australia a better uh, a better country. Uh, and so I'll be working with them to create a new international division. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's let's give them a plug. So so what what do they do? Yeah. So so they're a policy institute uh, that uh, does research. So so they create connect. Uh, uh, convince is their motto Mm -hmm. so the create bit is coming up with great policy ideas you know government is usually too preoccupied with short-term policy ideas so cpd comes up with longer-term policy ideas across a range of different areas so whether that's climate change or education uh or or economic growth uh, or making the economy more um uh, innovative and they then connect, they bring the right people together to socialize these ideas um, and then convince, they then engage, uh, you know, in advocacy to convince um, government, usually on the via, via kind of insider means, um, to adopt these policies and ensure that they're implemented. Um, so most of CPD's work has been domestically focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be starting sort of a new international program okay. for them to look at what's going on in the region. They already do work on human trafficking. Um, I'd love to do some work potentially um, on um, on climate change in the Pacific Islands. I'd love to do some work on Myanmar. Um, but these are, look, all these are just ideas out there. Um, but um, yeah, I'm very grateful that they've enabled me to have a couple of months off, which I really need to have a break after my job at Crisis Action and to help set the family up. We've got a new house. We've got to get kids into school. So I'll be starting uh, when with start, them yeah. in June, uh, yeah. So which will come around all too quickly. It will. But, um, but yeah. You've got a month to, you know, get your golf game in order and uh, <laughs> whatever. I, I haven't had a chance to play golf, I, but maybe I'll put that on the on the bucket list. Yeah. But it's um it's been a lot more trips to uh, the tip and Bunnings and IKEA. Than I would like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'll get to know you. They go, oh, he's back. Yes. I totally they've stopped asking for my ID at the tip. They're like, yeah, yeah. Flat, 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 flat cardboard boxes. Okay, off you go. Or Bunnings, yeah. Oh, that's barbecue sauce that he prefers, not the tomato sauce. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome home. Um, I think it's terrific that you're back in Australia and um, thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew Hudson. It's been an absolute pleasure talking uh, with you and we look forward to following your success in the years ahead. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much. Bye for now.